0: You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week, we're hearing from a special guest speaker. Good morning, church. How are we? Are we good? Are we awake? Yeah? Great. Well, it is such a joy to be with you all this morning. As Savannah said, My name is Cheyenne and I am on staff here at Vintage. A little more about me, my husband and I moved to LA about two years ago from New York. I grew up in New York and then I went to college in Nashville, Tennessee, graduated college in Nashville, Tennessee, started to work in Nashville, Tennessee and just assumed I would live and die all my days in Nashville, Tennessee because who wouldn't? Um, Then the pandemic hit. So, got married in 2020. Yep, you can ask me about that later. Got married in 2020 and moved back to New York in 2020. Lots of lots of bold life choices there for sure. Um, but I moved back to New York during the pandemic so that my husband and I could be closer to my family. Then, in 2021, with every intention in the world of moving back to Nashville. We somehow found ourselves praying about a job at a church in L.A. called Vintage. The past couple years have been amazing. This church, this community, the leaders here at Vintage have blessed us immensely since being here. And it is truly the honor of a lifetime to get to be here with you all this morning. So today I have the honor of continuing in our summer series on Philippians. This summer, we as a church are going through the book of Philippians. We have some incredible guest speakers coming in to teach us. And as I prepared to speak on Philippians today, I read quite a few commentaries on the text. Now, If I were still in college, I would tell you about how I strolled the aisles and aisles of the library, looking through all of the different scholarly books on Philippians, but I graduated college quite a few years ago, so I took a less-than-scholarly approach and I scrolled through Google. Now then, when you scroll through Google, you find both scholarly books, they are on there, um, and everyday devotional kind of style, books. And as I scrolled through all of the kind of books that are out there on Philippians, I noticed something. So I am going to read you the titles that I scrolled through and see if you notice something as well. You ready? Yes? Yes? Great. Life Lessons from Philippians, A Guide to Joy. Philippians, Shining with Joy. A Study of Philippians, Joy. Be Joyful, Philippians. (laughs) Philippians, the joy of living in Christ. The joy of living, a study of Philippians. (laughs) A guide to Philippians, discovering the joy of Jesus. Philippians, the theology of joy. Safe to say, by now you are noticing what I noticed. Philippians has been referred to as the letter of joy, the epistle of joy. Joy has been noted as the key word in Philippians, And so, we cannot do a summer series on Philippians without first doing a deep dive on perhaps one of its biggest themes, joy. So this morning, that is what we are going to do. We are going to talk about joy, but first, I want to address right away the temptation to tune out. I don't know about you, but when I read book titles like that, I honestly roll my eyes. When I hear that yet another sermon is going to be about joy, I start making lunch plans in my head. And I want to be entirely transparent with you all today and tell you, I did not want to talk about joy. And no, Gare did not make me. I did not want to talk about joy because for far too long, Many have made joy far too simplistic of a topic, when in reality, it is incredibly complex. To some, joy is too menial, and to others, it is too essential. Some of us have been peddled a false gospel of joy that tells us if we don't have joy, we must not really know Jesus. Some of us have believed a lie that tells us that joy is the absence of sorrow, And that because Christians are commanded to be joyful, we must pretend we don't have or need the full range of human emotions, denying part of what God has given us. Others of us have found joy so easy to come by that we just don't want to hear any more about it. Joy can be written off as the easiest sermon for a 27-year-old girl to preach. And joy can easily become the most insensitive sermon that a 27-year-old girl could preach. I did not want to talk about joy because I have been where you all are. I have sat in the seats of many different churches listening to sermon after sermon after sermon about joy, yet leaving feeling like joy is still somehow out of reach. Like I still don't fully even understand what joy is. And sometimes even like my suffering, disqualifies me from experiencing the joy that so many preach about. I have left sermons about joy feeling like a bad Christian. I have left sermons about joy feeling like my pain was sinful and my suffering was insignificant. I have left sermons about joy feeling like I need to somehow find a way to be non-human, that if I love Jesus, I need to stuff down bad feelings and emotions, suppress sorrow, outwit mental health, avoid grief at all costs, all in the name of being joyful. I did not want to talk about joy. I believe there are words within the church that are wounded, words that are used frequently and often used out of context and without real depth and clarity. These words then begin to provoke a range of conflicting responses in us. I think that joy is one of those wounded words. I think joy is a word that has often been misused, misdiagnosed, and misunderstood. And I think our varying reactions to the word joy prove that to be true. Some of you might find yourselves excited about this, excited about another opportunity to learn more about joy. While others of you might find yourselves exhausted by it, indifferent to it, or even just at the mention of the word joy Skeptical. For some in this room, the word joy brings back sweet memories, while for others, the word joy stirs up reminders of deep, deep suffering. I did not want to talk about joy, and yet I firmly believe that joy is too important of a topic to remain confused about, avoidant of, or frustrated by in the church. Now then, with all of this in mind, I hope it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, today will absolutely not be a sermon on how we are just commanded to choose joy. I believe we can learn a ton from Paul about choosing joy in all seasons of this life. Yes, but I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all, easy, simple prescription for joy in this life. Standing up here telling you all that you simply must choose joy is not something I'm interested in. So instead, I want to go on a journey together to rework and deepen our understanding of biblical joy. This joy that we see Paul write a ton about in Philippians. There are three big reasons why I think we struggle with joy, why I think it's become somewhat of a wounded word, and these are the things we are going to try to sort out a bit today. The first of which is, we don't really actually understand what joy is, what that word even means. We lack a good, solid, foundational definition of joy. The second, we have a tendency to look for joy in the wrong places, and the third, we struggle to understand the ways in which joy and suffering often go hand in hand. That said, there is truly no better person to help us rework and deepen our understanding of joy than Paul, who in Philippians we find filled with joy while in chains, in a prison cell, awaiting a trial that very well may lead to his death. Joy is complex. So let's dive in, in Philippians. Paul uses the words joy and rejoice 16 times in just four short chapters. He repeatedly tells the church that he is filled with joy, that he is rejoicing, and that they should too, that in life, in death, in all circumstances, there is reason to rejoice. That said, rather than just looking at one scripture today, we are going to jump throughout the text a little bit to try and really get a well-rounded look at this joy that Paul was filled with. And the first thing we need to do is look for a definition, rebuild a good foundational understanding of joy. Now, when it comes to defining joy for us here today, there are three approaches I could take. The first thing I could do is I could do the irresponsible thing. And solely give you the Merriam-Webster's definition of joy and call it a day. Which, first of all, you can all find on your own. You can Google it. We all have a phone. Second of all, I don't know what would happen, but I don't think it would be good if I got off the stage right now and said, we're done. And finally, most importantly, I read the definition and I really don't think it is how Paul would define the joy that he had at all. But... This is as much your journey with joy as it is mine, so all in good fun, we're going to read it together. Joy, an emotion evoked by well-being, success, good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires, a state of happiness. Now, for obvious reasons, I can't call Paul and find out how he really feels about Miriam Webster here, but I'm gonna take a wild guess and say that the joy he was writing to the church in Philippi about was not simply an emotion evoked by, like, well-being and success, right? Remember, the man is literally writing from prison. Now then, the next approach I could take would be explaining why I disagree with that definition and think Paul might too, but in order to do that, I would really just be saying something that I think we've all heard before. Joy can't just be a state of happiness because... Joy and happiness are different things. I personally have heard this countless times, particularly within Christianity. I've heard so many talk about how happiness is a fleeting emotion dependent on your circumstances, but joy is a deeper state of being that we are supposed to choose which the definition of happiness, that is true, by the way, the Old Norse or Old English root of the word happiness is hap, which is the same hap that we find in perhaps, happenstance, haphazard. It means chance or luck. So we're left with happiness, this fleeting emotion based on pure circumstance, and joy, this deeper state of being that we choose And I don't know about you, but to that, I've always left with the same question. What does that even mean? (laughs) A deeper state of being that I'm just supposed to choose, how does that actually help me understand what joy is and differentiate between happiness and joy? It's good that we've acknowledged that there's a difference between happiness and joy and that that is why we disagree with the above definition. But I think we still need to go a step or two further to really get a robust understanding of what biblical joy is. And so the final approach I could take when it comes to our lack of a good definition or understanding of joy would be doing the first thing that we should always do when we take a word out of the biblical text to study it and hopefully gain a better understanding of it, which is to look at it in its original context. Now, when I was a sophomore in college, I had a brief lapse of judgment and signed up for Biblical Greek. Um, don't know to this day why I did that, but I do know that my first week in that class, I looked my professor right in the eyes and I said, you're not going to see me much longer. <laughs> I am out of here. Um, and then two years later, I bid farewell to that professor and to Biblical Greek. While I did really struggle with Greek at times in college over those two years, I also came to deeply love the art of Biblical translation. I love words. And doing word studies is one of my favorite things. So today, we are going to do one together. The two Greek words we want to look at that we see Paul use in Philippians are Cairo and Cara, and they're going to come up on the screen right there. So Cairo is the first one. Kara is the second one. Cairo is our verb, to rejoice, and kara is our noun, joy. You're probably thinking, you're all looking at me like, yeah, Anne. Great, Cheyenne, this does not help us define joy at all. No, it doesn't. But there is this really interesting thing in the Greek dictionaries and concordances about these two words that I think does help us. Scholars have drawn an etymological connection between these two words, Cairo and Kara, and this other word that we find in the biblical text, which is charis, which means grace. So rejoice, joy, and grace. They're saying there's a connection here. They share the same root, car. And because they share the same root, scholars argue that they therefore have the same core fundamental meaning, joy, rejoice, and grace. Now, we always want to be very careful with Greek because it is an ancient language that we are many times removed from. So I would never go so far as to say, I believe joy and grace are the exact same thing. Not at all. But I do believe that they share something, right? It is evident when we look at the Greek that they share the same root, that essentially they come from the same thing. And I think for us today, as we do this deep dive on biblical joy and the problems we often encounter with joy in the 21st century, this is something really helpful to be aware of. And so I really started to examine this connection, this idea that joy somehow has a shared root with grace. And I found myself asking the question, what if then joy, this joy that we see Paul filled with in prison, could in part be better described or defined as an awareness of the grace of God? Well, Cheyenne, what is the grace of God? (laughs) Great question. To answer that, I am not going to answer that. I'm going to let one of my favorite authors answer it instead. Frederick Buechner says it like this. Grace is something you can never get, but can only be given There's no way to earn it or deserve it or bring it about any more than you can deserve the taste of raspberries and cream or earn good looks or bring about your own birth. A good sleep is grace and so are good dreams. Most tears are grace. The smell of rain is grace. Somebody loving you is grace. Loving somebody is grace. Have you ever tried to love somebody? The grace of God means something like here is your life. You might never have been, but you are, because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It is for you I created the universe. I love you. Simply put, grace is the undeserved, unmerited favor and goodness of God toward humanity. What if joy then is meant to be rooted in the awareness of this grace of God toward us, the awareness of this undeserved favor and goodness? Suddenly, we have a very different definition of joy than an emotion that is produced by well-being or success. And when we put joy back into the text, when we look at this letter, Philippians, that Paul wrote, I think this new definition, this makes more sense to me. That's a few verses, but it's actually one sentence, a sentence that begins with Paul saying, yes, and I will rejoice, and ends with him saying, whether by life or by death. Yes, I will rejoice fully aware that I am currently living in a potential death sentence. Paul's joy cannot simply be an emotion evoked by good circumstance, but I think this joy that we see in Paul can be an awareness of God's grace and goodness toward him, God's grace that holds us in both life and death, both here and now and in the coming then. God's grace that met Paul when he was still Saul, persecuting the followers of Jesus, It makes more sense to me that Paul's joy would be grounded in the grace and goodness of God that he experienced, even at his least deserving. That his joy would be grounded in the grace of God that lets him know, whether by life or death, God's got him. In the best of circumstances and the worst, his joy can be sustained by the awareness that he is covered and held by the grace and goodness of God. If joy were simply a state of happiness, it would be fickle. And the joy that we see in Paul is anything but fickle, it is resilient. This proposed new definition of joy and awareness rooted in the undeserved favor and grace of God gives us a foundation from which we can look at Paul's joy in the letter of Philippians and suddenly find that actually maybe it does make sense. And maybe this resilient joy is possible for us. Paul has reason to rejoice, even in the worst of circumstances, even in chains in a prison cell, not because his circumstances look good, but because he is aware of the grace of God that changed and saved his life. This then leads me to the second reason I think we struggle with joy sometimes. We have a tendency to look for it in the wrong places. About a month ago, my mom and my youngest sister, I have three sisters and two sister-in-laws, so if you ever need a sister, come talk to me, I have lots of practice. Um, Anyway, my mom and youngest sister were here for a visit and my sister wanted to play hide and seek and my sweet husband said, okay, let's play hide and seek. He ran inside as she counted to 20 and eventually she stood up and yelled out, ready or not, here I come. And immediately turns around, looks under the table, that her and I are sitting at, he's not there obviously, she sits back down and that's the end of the game. She gives up, she doesn't go look for Daniel, that was her looking for Daniel, she's now sitting down, she gives up. She didn't of course tell Daniel that she had given up and so poor Daniel sat, shoved in a tiny little boiler room waiting to be found. (laughs) I think as silly as it sounds, this is what a lot of us do with joy. We think it's hiding from us, We look for it in the wrong places, and after an attempt or two to find it, we give up. A question I hear about joy frequently in the church is, how could I possibly have joy when I look at my situation? And I could answer this simply by saying, well, remember, we just redefined joy as the undeserved favor of God. But I think anyone could easily poke a hole in that as well and ask just the same how could I possibly be aware of the undeserved favor of God when this is my reality? And those are very valid questions. And I understand and have the deepest empathy for those questions. So I want to ask another question in response What if we aren't supposed to look for joy there? Let's go back into the text and see what Paul has to say. Philippians 4, 4 through 5 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice. The Lord is near. There are these things in the Bible called study chains or chain references that we can use to essentially trace words throughout the entire biblical narrative. And when I followed the chain on the word rejoice, I found a pattern linking rejoicing and joy directly to the presence of God. We see it here in Philippians 4, we see it in Deuteronomy 12:7 which states, "There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and rejoice." Psalm 21:6, "Surely you have granted him unending blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence." First Chronicles 16:27, "Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and joy are in his dwelling place." We see it in Psalm 16:11. You have made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. I think that because I lacked a solid biblical definition of the word joy for many years of my life. I bought into the idea that joy was this deep state of happiness. And I developed a tendency, a very human tendency, to look for joy in things that make me happy. I looked for joy in relationships, I looked for joy in hobbies, I looked for joy in my job, I looked for joy in vacations, special events, special occasions, holidays, I looked for joy in good cups of coffee, honestly, because coffee makes me happy. I didn't know where to look for joy, and just like my sister was never going to find Daniel outside under the table because that's not where he was, I was never going to find joy in the things this life offers me or throws at me because that's not where joy is. I think sometimes we can take Philippians out of context, especially Philippians four, and we can use Paul to misuse the word joy. Many talk about how Paul commands the church of Philippi to rejoice, that he just commands them, they have to rejoice. But we fail to examine why he tells them this. Paul deeply, deeply loved the church of Philippi, and they deeply loved him too. When we see Paul writing to them, telling them to rejoice and be glad, I want us to remember they know where he's writing from. They know he's in prison. They know his life is at stake. They know the circumstances, the situation itself. It doesn't look too good. I think sometimes when we imagine this letter to the church of Philippi, we imagine Paul like yelling at them, like you must rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. But when I imagine them reading this letter, particularly the end of this letter, Philippians 4, I imagine tears streaming down their face. I imagine the church of Philippi had an emotional response to this letter. And I imagine Paul telling them to rejoice serves more as a comfort than it does a command. A comfort that gently yet firmly reminds them, rejoice just as I rejoice because whether in life or death, the Lord is with me. The Lord is with you. The Church of Philippi could easily ask the question so many of us ask. How could I possibly rejoice when I look at my situation, when I read this letter from someone I deeply love who is in chains, in prison, potentially awaiting execution? And yet when they read the words of Paul, rejoice, rejoice, the Lord is near, they are reminded of where they are supposed to look for joy, of where Paul himself looks for joy. When we look everywhere for joy but God's presence, God's nearness, I think we'll find ourselves hard-pressed to truly find it when biblically we see that there is an undeniable connection between joy and the presence of God. But now, I want to point out the presence of God was not the only biblical pattern I found when it comes to joy. There is another pattern that directly addresses the third struggle we often face with joy, and that is we have a really hard time understanding how to hold both joy and suffering in this life. I think sometimes we can accidentally step into agreement with this belief that if we really know what joy is, if we redefine it and learn where to actually look for it, we'll become immune to sorrow. Right, we'll we'll just, we'll be good, we're good. We're checked out on sorrow. We sometimes do this when we first come to truly know Jesus too, right? We think, oh, now I have Jesus, this savior, I'm good. I'm not gonna experience any more suffering. And then when trials inevitably come, when suffering inevitably comes, we are surprised and caught off guard and we start to question this joy that we are supposed to hold on to. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to hold both joy and suffering. We don't know if we're even supposed to hold both. And yet what I found as I examined joy throughout the Bible is that there is a biblical pattern of pain, suffering, grief, and lament preceding. Of suffering and joy seemingly walking hand in hand. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning." Isaiah 35.10 says, They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them as sorrow and sighing flee away. Psalm 126.5-6 says, Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy. We see this same biblical pattern play out in Paul's life. What we get in Philippians, yes, is Paul, this theologian of joy, stating over and over and over again, I rejoice, I will rejoice, yet I rejoice, I am glad and rejoice. But I want to take a look at 2 Corinthians 11 quickly, where Paul does not mince words when it comes to his suffering. This is Paul. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a day and a night in the open sea, I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers." I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Paul suffered. I love that we are studying Philippians this summer, but we would be remiss to act like Philippians is all that there is to the story. Paul knew joy, yes, but he did not write this letter, this epistle of joy without knowing suffering too. And what Paul shows us is that as followers of Jesus, we neither need to minimize deep pain and suffering nor lose hope because of pain and suffering. Paul had to hold both. Some of us in here today don't care about biblical patterns and narratives and etymological connections. And so I want to point out the Bible actually isn't the only place we see this precedence of pain and suffering before joy. It isn't the only place we see joy coming out of what is broken. We also see this frequently in nature. I could tell you about oysters and about how pearls are only made as a defense mechanism to an irritant like a parasite entering into the shell. I could tell you about fire poppies, these seeds that lie dormant underground for years. And then when a fire hits, when the ground around them burns, the smoke signals to them, hey, it's time to bloom. I could tell you about Yellowstone National Park and Old Faithful, a geyser that erupts semi-predictably and I won't give you the full science lesson, but essentially there are these cracks that develop because of temperature and whatnot, pressure. Under the surface, water moves through those cracks. It bursts up through broken ground and hundreds of people, I went, I've seen it, hundreds of people gather around the geyser and erupt into joyful shouts when the water bursts through. The parasite precedes the pearl. The fire precedes the flower. The broken ground precedes the joyful shouts. The biblical pattern echoes this precedence. Paul's life echoes the precedence. Nature echoes this precedence. And many of our own lives echo this precedence, too. I learned as an adult that I suffered my first severe panic attack when I was only six years old. That is the first one I can remember, at least. I had a messy childhood, complete with abuse, alcoholism, and absence, which unknowingly led me directly into severe anxiety at a very young age, my brain's way of protecting me, or so I've been told. And while my incredible mother, who is here with me from New York today, did all that she could to infuse my childhood with sweetness and succeeded in so many ways, The bitterness of the suffering was still the overarching theme that my childhood left me with. My earliest memories are mostly marred by grief. Pain had become the precedent for the rest of my life and I wasn't raised in a Christian household. I didn't know anything about biblical patterns and narratives and Greek words. What I knew was sorrow and pain and grief and loss and fear and anxiety. I was a daughter who longed for a father who longed to know a good father's love. And as a preteen, I came to know Jesus. And the thing, the specific thing that made me want to know Jesus was the pain that I felt from my lack of a father and the promise that I would find a good father in Jesus. And I did. My relationship with Jesus truly is the greatest joy of my life but it was preceded directly by the deepest pain of my life. Sure, I might have come to know Jesus if I didn't know the pain that I knew, but I am telling you, it was that pain that led me to his feet in the first place. The brokenness and suffering I experienced as a child is what preceded the joy I then came to know in Jesus' love. And in his love, I found the faithful father that I as a daughter so longed for Yes, but I also found a Savior who not only saw me in my suffering, but he met me in it with his own shared experience to bring to the table. The biblical pattern of pain preceding joy, we see it in Paul, we see it in nature, we see it in our own lives, and we see it in the life of Jesus. In the Gospels, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane grieved to the point of death, overwhelmed with sorrow. His sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground. In Isaiah 53, Jesus is referred to as the man of sorrows, one who is familiar with suffering. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. We do not have a savior who knows no pain In Philippians, Paul writes about how when we suffer, we share in the sufferings of Christ. We have a savior who is familiar with suffering, who brings his own shared experience to the table, who in his own life endured great suffering because heaven without us wasn't an option to him. And he knew that his suffering would one day end in the greatest joy, In the joy of seeing sons and daughters restored back to him, redeemed, whole, and invited into this complex biblical joy for all of eternity. We have a Savior whose suffering preceded great, great joy, and it still today does. When we look to Revelation, we find that that same Savior will one day return and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things will have passed away. Just as Jesus suffered on the cross for the joy set before him, the reconciliation and restoration of humanity, relationship with us, we too can live in joyful anticipation today, even in our own suffering, of the day that will one day come when Jesus returns to set all things right. Now you're probably thinking, wonderful. Now she's going to end this sermon by telling me that if I want joy, I just need to have a more eternal perspective on things or I need to spend more time with God or be more thankful for his grace and goodness, right? Practice gratitude. (laughs) Listen, (laughs) for some of you, Maybe that is what you need to hear, that biblically joy is grounded in the grace of God and connected to the presence of God. And so getting in his presence, remembering his goodness is what you need more of. Maybe that is the good news that you need this morning. For some of you, maybe Revelation is what you need to be reminded of, that biblically, there is a day that is coming when Jesus will set all things right, will wipe every tear from your eyes, restore back to you all that was lost, and redeem all that was broken. Maybe that's the good news you need today. And while all of that is absolutely true, I think most of us have heard it before. You don't need another equation or transaction from me. You don't need another reminder to look to eternity. You don't need good news that'll happen someday or good news that is dependent on something that you have to do. You need tangible good news right here, right now. Good news that meets you exactly where you are. So as we close today, as we read Philippians this summer, this epistle of joy penned by the apostle filled with joy, I want to give you the words of David in Psalm 31:7, words that have challenged me, grown me and comforted me as I have attempted to navigate my own suffering and rework my own understanding of joy. I will be glad and rejoice in your love for you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. You saw and you knew, you see me and you know me Even in my deepest suffering. For the person here today who is struggling with mental health, with depression or anxiety, and feels like a bad Christian because you've seemingly seen and have been told over and over again that good Christians have joy, Jesus sees your affliction and he intimately knows the anguish of your soul. For the person here today who has experienced the minimization, of deep pain, of great loss, and deep suffering, all in the name of joy. Even sometimes at the hands of the church, Jesus sees your affliction, and he knows the anguish of your soul. For the person here today who longs for joy, yet knows that what they are walking out those back doors to is loneliness, grief, and some form of long-suffering, Jesus sees you, He sees your affliction and he intimately knows the anguish of your soul. For the person here today who is just all joy all the time, who understands joy and has plenty of it, when the trials of life inevitably do come, know that Jesus sees you. He intimately sees you and knows the anguish of your soul. There is joy to be found even here. Maybe even especially here in being seen and known by the king of heaven. I think this is part of what Paul knew that produced this resilient joy in him. He wasn't alone in that prison cell. His father's eyes were on him. His savior was with him and would be with him either way. Just as he could offer his gratitude to him, his praise to him, to Jesus, he could offer his suffering. To Jesus too. He could bring it all to Jesus, lay it all at Jesus' feet. He could dance, he could scream, he could laugh, he could weep. Knowing that whether by life or by death, he would be held by the grace of God, found in the presence of Christ, and intimately, deeply seen and known by his Savior. What if Church, on our journey to a deeper understanding of joy, what we find is deeper relationship and intimacy with our Heavenly Father. And what if that's worth more than what we were looking for to begin with? Will you stand with me? This morning, as we close, I'm going to invite our prayer ministry team up. We end every Sunday with prayer ministry and worship. And so if anyone in here needs prayer for anything today, I'm gonna invite you to come forward during worship and receive. But now I just want us to all take a moment, to just take a moment and still ourselves and make ourselves aware of the presence of Jesus. In this room, yes, but also outside those doors, the presence of Jesus that goes with you, the presence of Jesus that stays with you, that sees you, that intimately knows you. Just take a moment and make ourselves aware of the presence of Jesus where this resilient joy might just be waiting to be found. So Lord, we just invite you here today. Holy Spirit, would you come? Jesus, would your presence fall on us in this room? Would you meet us right where we are? For some of us, that is in deep sorrow. For some of us, it's in seasons of victory and celebration. Lord, we just invite you to come and meet with your children. Meet with them right where they are. And Lord, would you make us, yes, a people just like Paul of joyful anticipation who eagerly await the day that you come back, that you return and you wipe every tear and you restore all that was lost and redeem all that was broken. May we live in joyful anticipation of that day, but may we also be a people like Paul who can hold both suffering and joy in the raw reality of what is right here and right now, because we know that you have just lavished your love and your grace on us. We know that you've got us, whether by life or by death, by joy or by sorrow. We know that you are with us, that you are a saviour who chooses to be near to his people. We thank you for that. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.